if you are lacking in curiosity, you're going to be a really uninteresting person because anybody thinks that they know and they're no longer curious. To me, it's like oxygen to be curious. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. What do you think is better, being a specialist or a generalist? Are you better off having a deep body of knowledge or a wide set of experiences? This comes up in conversations I have all the time. And my question is, why not both? He took the money. And of course, the reason you never heard of the film Junkie is because it never got made. But what it did do is expose me to the film business. That's Jeff Madoff. He started out as a fashion designer running his own company, and then he switched into film and video production, and many years later has become well-known for working with organizations like Victoria's Secret, Ralph Lauren, and even Harvard. What's not obvious about his change is the role that having both depth and breadth played in his success over the years, not just being a specialist and not just being a generalist, but being both in really concentrated areas. How did he do this? Well, (laughs) that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Listen for it later on in our conversation, and I'll give you a clue. It has something to do with leveraging your own curiosity. The design career, which happened by accident, I did achieve very rapid growth. We were doubling like every three or four months. Within a year and a half, I had about 120 employees a factory in Footville, Wisconsin. I'm sure you've heard of that. And then a second factory in a place in Northern Wisconsin, which I actually can't remember the name of, an office in New York at the Empire State Building. And, you know, so things happened quickly. And and I was chosen one of the top 10 young designers in the United States, which isn't as impressive as it sounds, because I think there were only eight of us. Back then, young people weren't doing startups. That just wasn't a thing. A lot of the companies, like when I go to buy fabric when I was starting out, didn't want to work with me because, you know, to them, I was a kid and I was a kid. I was like 21 when I started it. But so they didn't think there was any credibility behind the business I had, but I had attracted very good financial backing and, you know, I was a legitimate business and in national magazines and all of that kind of thing. But I did also was fortunate enough to find some mentorship and was also unfortunate enough to trust people at times that I shouldn't have, but you learn, you know, you learn from that. And so I did. So I started when I was 21. And when I made the decision to move to New York, which we might want to go into why about that. I am super curious as to why I read about this move to New York. However, I don't know all the backstory. So please do tell. So the business was going well. There was a recession and all of a sudden, the stores that used to pay in 30 to 45 days, usually the terms were net 30 on the sales, were taking 90 days, 120 days. That was really tough. 
my backer stuck with me. He was a very good man. But the main reason that he backed me, other than he thought my business was interesting, and I was kind of a novel character to him and was making money, he owned five banks in Wisconsin. So all those people that worked at factories and worked for me banked at his bank. And he told me that one of the main reasons that he was backing me was that I provided employment for Wisconsinites. And he was a fifth generation Wisconsinite. And when things got rough and I wanted to move to New York because I realized I needed to be around people who were in this business. And this business really doesn't exist too much outside of New York, especially fashion. I mean, a bit in LA, but way less than New York. And back then it was a way, way less than New York. And I had no interest in living in LA, but New York was very seductive to me because I'm a stimulus junkie and I just love the city. Didn't start out that way, by the way. Initially, the city was intimidating to me. You know, I had never ridden subways or gotten around on buses. I grew up in Ohio in the suburbs. And initially, New York was a bit intimidating, but the more I went there and learned the city, the more I loved it until I absolutely wanted to be there. The conflict that arose was that my backer said to me, if you move to New York, I'm not going to continue to back your business. And he had made that clear from the beginning. It wasn't a mean thing he was saying, and I understood it. And so I was faced with a big decision when I was like 23 or so, 24, which was, you know, do I stay in Wisconsin and continue to do my business or do I give it up? Maybe look like a failure because the business wasn't going to continue. It would close if I moved. And I had the realization money comes and goes, time only goes. And uh, I was talking to a dear friend of mine and he, he said, so do you have a job lined up in New York? I said, no. Do you know anybody there? I said, Not really, no. Do you have a place to live? No. And he said, well, aren't you afraid of moving there? And I said, no, you know, actually I'm more afraid of staying here because I kind of knew what the script was, or at least I thought I knew what the script was. And so I wanted to move on and do something different. And I had saved up enough that if I lived frugally, which I did, I could travel parts of the world, not work for almost a year. And then I started another fashion business because I had a good reputation and my stuff sold and built that up and then sold it to another company. And that's when I transitioned to the next career. So here's what I'm curious about then, Jeff. You said you had that realization that money comes and goes, but time only goes was it that conversation with your friend that led to that realization or was it another event or set of events? What led to that realization? My dad came, my parents were entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, my mom and dad owned some uh, retail stores in Akron. And I remember one time my dad coming home and seemed particularly pensive. And I said, dad, what's going on? And he kind of shook his head and he said, you know, I don't remember the guy's name. But the guy who worked in the bank next door where my dad did his banking, they had a retirement party for him. He was 65 and they had a retirement party for him during lunch hour uh, and where a few people said, you know, he's been of great service to the bank and that kind of thing. He was given the what is now the cliche, probably was a cliche then, the gold watch. Yep. And exactly. And my dad said, and I thought. That's it. You work in this bank 
for 40 years and you get a watch and you just said goodbye and you take your little box of stuff from your desk and that's it. And it just hit him. And he thought, you know, and he said, and adults always tell you this now that I'm an adult, at least, at least I've, I've aged, if not matured, time really goes fast. And my dad said, you know, boy, the time goes so quickly. You spend 40 years working there and you get a 45 minute lunch, actually not even lunch. They had cake and then gave him the watch. And then he left. They said, watching him walk out of the bank was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. It is so anticlimactic to put it yeah. mildly understatement of the of many years, I suppose of a lifetime for him. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, you know, when I, kind of realized, you know, that left a huge impression. That was years before I made that decision for myself, but that left a strong impression on me and how it affected my dad. And then it made sense. And I started actually, Scott, thinking about words. I think about time and you think about money. You hear time is money. Well, time isn't money, right? You know, because you spend time, you spend money, you waste time, you waste money, you save time, you save money, but time only goes. Money comes and goes, but time only goes. That's a one-way street. Mm-hmm. As it passes, you're past it, and it's always that. And so I realized there's a real difference between the time is money because at a certain point, you can't buy any more time. Agreed. Completely. Yeah. And, and, and so when I was thinking about the words, and I'm always fascinated by word roots and where things come from, that really hit me. And I realized, I think fortunately at a young age, that money comes and goes, time only goes. And all of those other things don't really make any difference. That's so interesting. So I have a lot of things about that are interesting, particularly the separation of... <laughs> time and money and looking at them as individual concepts versus what is now also very cliched, maybe even more so than the gold watch, that time is money. But I'm super curious too about your fascination with word roots and other things. Where does that come from? I'm also very fascinated by that to the point where you know our organization name happened to your career is completely put together based on the etymology of where the original words come from. And, you know, that's a longer story. Maybe we don't have time for right now. However, I'm curious where your fascination of word roots and the like come from. Well, I've always been, and it's always been encouraged by, it was always encouraged by my parents. I've always been curious about stuff. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, and you may have read this story in my book, when my neighbor invited me to look through his telescope that he had just gotten. And we were like 12 years old or something. And he said, look at Orion. Do you see Orion? I said, no, I see a bunch of stars. He said, no, no, look, there's the three stars that are his belt. You don't see that? I, said, I see a bunch of stars. He said, there's the shoulder. And then that's the sword. You don't see that? I said, I only see a bunch of stars. And the more I said that, the more frustrated and pissed off he got. And I said, uh, he said, I can't believe you can't see Orion. I said, well, Billy, I see what everybody agrees is Orion, but that's just because everybody agreed that's Orion. It's not intrinsically Orion. And I liked the word intrinsically because it meant in and of itself. And 
you know, we assign that because humans are always searching for an organizing principle and meaning. But it's just a bunch of stars mm-hmm. until you assign that meaning to it. And by the way, it's only Orion in United America. They have a whole different mythology around stars. You go to Asia, they have a whole different mythology around stars. So it's uniquely in the United States, North America, those what those stars represent. I always was interested. So why is something called something? That's still a fascination I have. I always asked lots of questions when I was a kid. So my teachers either really liked me or found me incredibly <laughs> annoying. That's fair. I can I can see that. That's <laughs> the curiosity and innate curiosity, especially when it is to the extremes. It seems like there's no middle ground for teachers <laughs> in that area. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I remember when I was in, I, I don't remember what grade, fourth grade or something like that. You know, we learned that Columbus discovered America. And I raised my hand and I said, how could he discover something when people were already here? What do you mean? <laughs> and I said, well, the Indians were already here. So how could he discover something? They were already here. Columbus discovered the Indians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, not so much. (laughs) And so that kind of thing also, you know, the words and how the words were used. And then in that case, what it implied, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, not to get too deep into this, but there was an implied racism about it. These aren't Mm -hmm. people. They're something else. And that threw me off. Yeah. So a lot of these things had made big impressions on me when I was younger, as I read more books talked to more people, educated myself more, those things became actually more interesting to me because it created more questions. And I think that if you are lacking in curiosity, you're going to be a really uninteresting person because anybody thinks that they know and they're no longer curious. To me, it's like oxygen to be curious. You know, that keeps my life going because it's so interesting, all of this stuff unfolding. Being in Manhattan now, and we did not leave during the pandemic, and I was acutely aware that history was unfolding every day here. And my family, we would open the windows and applaud for the healthcare workers. And that was happening every day for about four months out the windows. And just thinking, what an astounding thing is going on now. So I've always had that kind of curiosity and always, you know, I wondered about things. And, you know, when in order to wonder, I I do this in my class, you know, I said, if you change the O to an A, you wander and you wander so you can wonder about, you know, like I, I looked, I remember seeing a lobster. I went to a seafood restaurant when I was a kid and they had the tank with the lobsters in it. And I thought, who looked at that the first time and thought, you know, I'll bet you if I tore the ass off that and dipped it in some butter, it'd be delicious. (laughs) You know, who? you had to be really hungry to think, (laughs) oh, man, does that look like it tastes good? (laughs) You know, so but I wonder about stuff like that. How did that happen? And that led me to actually study lobsters, not to any great extent, but the realization that lobsters were initially so plentiful off the coast of Maine that they were prison food and for poor people. And it was through a genius of marketing 
that it became, it used to cost a quarter of the price of chicken. And it was through genius of marketing that they made this very plentiful, very ugly creature. I mean, maybe not ugly to another lobster, but to me it is. And uh, that it became a luxury food. And so if you go down the rabbit hole, those discoveries to me are really cool. I love those discoveries as well. And I suspect that if we go back to that concept of wandering, and actually, you know what, let's go all the way back for just a moment here, where you wandered to New York, and you decided that, hey, this is, I, I'm more scared of staying here in many different ways. And it sounds like in some ways, too, that getting to know you a little bit, there was probably some element of curiosity as, as well that was on the other side of that. And what took place in New York after you had you know, opened up the other design company, you had ended up selling it? What took place that made you decide, hey, this is something I want to, I want to sell, I want to move into what many people would consider to be an entirely different career path? So you're talking about the transition and going into film then? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I had the experience very young with my first company. I started when I was in Wisconsin. And part of the reason, by the way, that I got was able to attract publicity is not just because my clothing sold, but I was a young kid doing this out of Wisconsin, not a fashion center, you know? So, <clears throat> pardon me. So I was a novelty also. When I moved to New York, moved 11 different places, you know, that first year, traveled around a lot, and then ran out of money. So I was approached to start another company, which I did. I realized, you know, this business is not the business I want to be in. That I felt I had, and I didn't know that at the time. So I'll tie this together. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't doing anything dramatically different than I had done when I was in Wisconsin, other than I was in a more interesting environment being in New York. One of the people that I bought fabric from, really nice man. And he was one of these guys that extended me credit Mm -hmm. when I started my previous company. He had extended me credit, you know, because he liked me. I thought he thought I was a bright kid. Yeah. So he said to me, "Uh, Jeff, do you know anything about the film business? Said, not really. I've read some books and I go to I love m- movies, but not really. And he said, well, look, you've got a good head on your shoulders. My son is your age. He's getting involved with some people. Would you mind talking to him? Because, you know, he won't listen to me at all. Yeah, I'd be happy to meet him. And I met his son. He was going out at that time with the daughter of, I don't know if you're familiar with the actor, Eli Wallach and his wife, Ann Jackson, both wonderful actors who have very rich careers. For your listeners, Google them because you've probably seen them if you've watched some older movies. They were great. And his son, his name is Tommy, uh, had optioned the rights to William Burroughs' novel, Junkie. Mm. And uh, William Burroughs was one of the seminal figures, along with Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, of the beat movement in the 50s. And Burroughs was the scion to the Burroughs business machine fortune. But he wanted nothing to do with his family business. He was a heroin addict. He was gay. So he was a total outcast in terms of his family and all of that. And he also wrote the book Naked Lunch, which is also a, quite a famous book if you look at, at literature in the 50s and 60s. So anyhow, Tommy was doing the film based on Burroughs' book, and it was going to star and be directed by Dennis Hopper. So I met Dennis Hopper. He and I hit it off 
he wanted me to be in the movie. And anyhow, it was really interesting for a while. And then what happened is that Burroughs, Hopper, and Terry Southern, who wrote Magic Christian and a few other books, and Hopper and Southern would argue about who wrote Easy Rider, which is another one of the classic, iconic films of the 60s. But they wouldn't get any work done. And so it was really interesting because I, I said to my friend, look, they're going to squeeze you out of this. You've put this team together and they don't need you anymore. It's my film. I said, yeah, but it's not going to get made. You know, they were getting high every night. They would wake up at four in the afternoon. They had taken a suite at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. And so it was clear to me that it was never going to happen. So what was initially interesting in meeting these people and spending time with them became not so interesting anymore because unfortunately, you know, they were addicts. And when you are an addict and you're numbing whatever pain it is in your life, you're also not terribly productive when you have something real to do. Sure enough, they told him they wanted to buy him out of his option. And they offered him three times more than he had paid for it. I said, you've tripled your money in four months. Take the money. And he said, but it's, but it's my film. And I said, it's not going to get made. They're not going to make it. I wanted to be in the film. You know, that was pretty cool initially. Yeah. But it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. He took the money. And of course, the reason you never heard of the film Junkie is because it never got made. But what it did do is expose me to the film business. And through somebody I met through Burroughs, I met some people who were starting a company that wanted to start shooting fashion shows because nobody was doing that. And I had this intuitive feel for the medium. And that's when I realized, wow. The fashion design stuff, I mean, that's been cool. That's been good to me. But this is so much more interesting to me. And it will use what I believe to be my talents in a much bigger and broader way. And I met these people. We had dinner together. We went back and I looked at footage. And by I met them on a Tuesday. And on Thursday, I started my first project with them. That was really interesting. And then I started my own company you know, truncating the story here, but I wanted to start my own company and do what I wanted to do with it. But it was the, again, the curiosity and the opportunity to do something that would stretch and use my talents more than I thought the fashion business would for what I liked. I mean, there's wonderfully creative people in fashion. I'm only talking about what satisfies me. I'm not saying anything about the industry. I think what's really interesting to me and I would say fascinating to me about your story is I think that there's so many elements there that are common when people haven't, I'm just going to call it like a you know reasonable success on the other end where they are able to take their talents, as you said, and put them together in a way like talents and strengths and you know, past experiences in a way that is really interesting. And more fulfilling. Some of those commonalities that seem to be there that definitely appear to be a part of your story, Jeff, are that you went and did something and had a track record of success first. And then, you know, as you started, or I guess I should say, kept being curious and kept being open in different ways, then it eventually led to a way to be able to put those past experiences together. And I see that again and again in different industries, different people's stories. If those elements aren't there, then it doesn't appear to get to the 
I don't know what you want to call it, like the output on the other end, the happier place on the other end, maybe happier is the wrong word, but you know, that higher fulfillment, higher interest, higher type. Uh, so I'm curious, what advice would you give to people that are going through or looking for, you know, that same type of transition in one way or another, where they want to put together their past experience, but want to do it in a, in a new and different way that is more interesting or more fulfilling to them? Well, there's a couple of things. One is what I learned when I started in the film business Yeah, was it was exactly like the fashion business. And what I mean by that is, so when I was designing a line of clothing, came up with a concept, right? Did some research, came up with a concept. Then I sketched the ideas. And then once I had the ideas sketched and made my selections and all of that in finding fabrics or the materials for it, figuring out what the labor costs would be to make it. Uh, in other words, established a budget, established a selling price, had to sell it, had to get paid for it. And then that would go back and I'd start the process over again. When I started in the film business, it starts with an idea. Then it starts with some rough sketches, which can become the storyboard. You have to cost out your materials. You have to cost out your labor. You have to figure out how much time it's going to take, uh, meeting the deadline and getting paid for it. So the protocols of business, and I maintain the protocols in almost all businesses are essentially the same, going from idea to concept to budget to billing to collecting and starting over again. That's one thing that demystified an awful lot of businesses to me, is realizing that you can do a deconstruction of that and understand the business much better when you just look at the protocols involved. Another thing is is that we're, we're... compressing many, many years into a few minutes here. Yes, we are. And I think that we should do my life in real time. So <laughs> <laughs> this is good. I hope you're clearing out your schedule, Jeff. <laughs> We're going to need a few minutes longer. Yes, we'll order in some food and we'll see what All we right. can do. Perfect. But, but the point is, and I think it's one of the big myths of entrepreneurship, Yeah, is that, you know, it somehow is easy. It's not easy. It's hard. It's a lot of work. And although I think more and more people are making those attempts, a lot of people go into it blindly, as I did, and which was a good thing in a sense, you've probably heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss. And that is true because if you knew all the risks involved up front, you might not attempt it, you know? So it's not easy. It requires a lot of work. And that a lot of work phase never goes away. Uh, you get smarter about it, maybe use your time better, can delegate more as your business grows. But if you own the business, you're dealing with a lot all the time. That's just the nature of it. That's important to understand. When you get to the question of, do I make the switch? And what should I ask myself when making that switch? I think the first thing you have to ask yourself, and I don't think most people ask themselves this question until they're middle-aged or older, is what is success? And what does success look like? You know, to me, is it having a home in the city, a country home for the weekends, and an island home somewhere else, and cars and wardrobe in every place, and you know, all of that? Does it mean that you're doing something that most of the time, because it'll never happen all the time, but at least more than fifty percent of the time, you feel happy and fulfilled about what you're doing? You know, what is success for you? There's not a right or wrong answer. 
But it's important if you're aiming for a certain destination that you've got a map to help you get there. And I think that's a question people often don't ask themselves is what does success look like to them? What does it mean? And then it's, why am I doing this? You know, what's, what is my motivation for wanting to be whatever that is? So in my case, in terms of, you know, transitioning to doing film, I wanted to have a broader palette of creative expression. And that was what was really interesting to me because I wanted to write stuff. I wanted to work with musicians to do scoring. I wanted to work with great cinematographers that I directed to do things. And I just wanted that richer palette to draw from for a greater creative expression. And I wanted to make enough where essentially money wasn't a concern, but money wasn't a concern because my needs, my family's needs, and it's different. You know, I got married. I have two kids. And so you can't just think about yourself. You've got to think about what's the impact on other people when you're taking risks and making decisions. So you can't be foolish about it because you have to realize you're putting other people's lives at risk unless you have so much money that you're fine. I didn't happen to be born into that kind of family. And I was hoping my wife was wealthy and she wasn't. So, you know, <laughs> you just have to sort of be, be sensible and calculate and assess your risks in terms of what you're doing. But for the first 15 years of my career after fashion, I didn't have a family and I was able to, you know, to do those things and establish that business. The question arises, Scott, if you're making really good money, but you hate what you're doing and every day that you go to work, you find it a drag, are you successful? And to me, that success and fulfillment are inextricably tied together. It's really almost a what should be a common milestone that we look at in people's lives. It's not a common milestone. That question that you posed earlier of, you know, what is success to me? What does success look like to me? And what are some of my motivations around that? I feel like we've got all the normal things like you, you know, you get born, you go to school, you, you know, maybe graduate from college, you, you get married or have kids or whatever, all of those conventional milestones, if you will. But then I feel like there's a whole other set of events that happen in someone's life when they choose to grapple with that question of what success looks like. And it, it happens to your point all too often around, you know, the middle of life, sometimes even later. You know, I've, or not at all. Yeah, or not at all. Yeah, I've, I've had many conversations with people that are in their 70s that are just now grappling with that, that type of question and are trying to figure out for the first time. But where you, that milestone, I think, is where you shift over from what are other people's ideas of what success looks like into what are my ideas of what success looks like. So I really appreciate you articulating that. And I hadn't really thought about it in that exact way. Also, what is really fun to see too, is I know a bit about the end of your story too. Well, not the end of your story, but the current day. Yeah, of the yeah. <laughs> the well, that's the end of the story. Well, I guess we don't need to have lunch anymore. <laughs> Died on the podcast, but you were there, folks. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it might make for good radio. I don't know, but hold out on me, Jeff. <laughs> you know, when we started this conversation, you were telling me a little bit about the play that you have coming up, you know, as of 
recently, it's been rescheduled to, it's going to launch in 2022, February of 2022 as well, right? And what I'm seeing now is some of those common threads that are running through your story where you probably were not in a position to be able to put that play together in the way that you have now if we went back to when you were running the design business. I'm just taking a shot in the dark here, but now it's totally possible in a new and different way. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, I think that I believe that one of the things, and this is true about the play, and frankly, it's true about, you know, I became a parent older. And I think in both cases, I had more life experience and I hope had more wisdom in terms of coping with the realities of those situations. I'm curious, what do you mean when you say in coping with the realities of those situations? What does that mean? Tell me more. Things never happen as quickly as you want them to happen. You get disappointed by people, you know, who seem in the moment to be very present and don't follow up. And just all the things that are day-to-day life that when I was younger, I would tend to more personalize, but it really has nothing to do with me and everything to do with them Hmm. and who they are. And that's just the way people function. You know, I have enough years under my belt to, you know, to see that. I mean, it's amazing to me, and I've done some very unscientific market research in this, and I have friends that are CEOs of major companies and a whole range of different occupations. And I would say to them, so what percentage of people would you say either don't call back or answer an email? And one of these people, and I'll be discreet, he runs a major entertainment corporation. And he said, oh, I guess 85%. I said, 85% don't get back to you. And he says, yeah, and understand, I'm in a position to give them money. <laughs> and the numbers ran anywhere from 80 to 90% in terms of people just not following through. And I said to my kids, if you just show up ready to do the job, you're going to beat out 85% of the competition because most people just don't. And it's kind of incredible. And, you know, I was, was brought up to be responsible. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you say you're going to show up at a time, you do it. If you say to somebody, I'll get back to you, you do it. But I didn't realize that was more the exception than the rule. And I know lots of people in business take that to heart and feel like, I don't know why I didn't get back. they didn't get back to me and I've been waiting. I said, well, don't wait, call them. And so this is, I think, good for your listeners, because one of the things you do is email them and say, I just wanted to confirm that you received my previous email. Oh, I'm so glad she contacted me. I didn't, you know, whether that was out of embarrassment or true, it opened up the dialogue again. Call the person, follow up. You don't know what's going on in their lives. They might've just died on a podcast. You know, (laughs) you know, you know, you don't, you don't know what's going on. So don't assume it's about you and follow up. You've got nothing to lose. And the sure way to make sure nothing happens is do nothing. So take your own initiative and be proactive. And a lot of people are, are, don't, I don't want to be a pest. So so you just want to sit here and be anxious, you know, act on it, follow up, force in a nice way, a response by asking for confirmation. Just want to make sure you receive this. Hope everything's okay. And that's all you have to do. And there, the percentage of response goes from this to that. And those are just some strategies, frankly, for waking people up because everybody's consumed with their own lives and what they have to do. 
Jeff, I so appreciate this conversation and to bring this full circle, all of these events have led to a semi-recent book as well. And I just wanted to acknowledge that because one of the things I wanted to ask you in order to close this out is, you know, if people want to get more Jeff, where can they go? Where can they get more Jeff? You know, how can they get the book, which by the way, is Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Tell us more. Do I get to hold it up so I can show them and do a shameless book? You get book? a shameless book pub. Here we go. Thank you. Oh, a, two, a twofer shameless a book twofer. I love that. I love that. The book is available where all fine books are sold. Uh, you can, you can uh, go to Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble or Audible, you know, all of those places. And by the way, if you like the book, please post a review on Amazon because it helps in their rankings. And if you don't like the book, keep it to yourself. <laughs> I have a website, two websites, uh, Madoff, M-A-D-O-F-F, productions.com, where you can see my film work. And then there's a creativecareer.com. And you can see some of the clips and interviews with some of my guests. And I have a, an amazing range of really cool guests and you'll get a lot of them in the book. And then there's an Instagram also at Creative Careers. And uh, there's shorter clips there. And then I'm on LinkedIn as the name you see on your screen, B. Jeffrey Madoff. And there's a Creative Careers LinkedIn group I started. In the very next episode, I can tell you about a story. A story where Alyssa and I were sitting at Woody's overlooking the beach in San Diego. We had banana pancakes, coffee, and breakfast burritos. It wasn't just us, though. We were listening to Michael tell us what his life was like now. If work is fun, like what I'm doing now, I find these moments when I'm like, you know, it's eight o'clock on a Tuesday night, and I'm like, should I watch a movie? I'm like, no, I actually really feel like working because I'm not, it's not work, it's fun. I'm having fun with it. Michael had been an executive for Sony Entertainment for many years, and it was a great career for him. Intel, it wasn't. The crazy thing is that in all these years working for Sony, even though he enjoyed lots of pieces of it, he'd never realized that work could be something that was fun. And as we were sitting there listening to his story, it was evident how much life had changed for Michael in the last two years. <laughs> and that was when I asked if he would come on the podcast and share everything that went into his journey to find his ideal career. Next week, we'll dive into all that and more right here on the Happen to Your Career podcast. Until then, I am out. Adios. But I'll tell you something that, you know, yeah. it's one of the things that we can talk about is, you know, I went from my first adult career, uh, sounds like I did porn. Yes, you know, so I was an adult. My first adult. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, we're just going to jump right in right now. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about where that started. I'm super curious about that. What caused you to get into design in the first place? How did that come about? Uh, I had an acid flashback when I was in college. No. Uh, <laughs>